we hear from you this morning out of your recorded written record for our lives, that we might understand it more clearly, we might be able to use it more wisely, and Father, that we might follow you more faithfully, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, Matthew and the Messiah King. If you've uh, ever heard people talk about preaching and what you ought to do when you preach, or if you ever heard preachers talk about that, there was a trend in particularly American Christianity, that a preacher really ought to have three points and a poem every time he preaches. Well, since I don't have a poetic bone in my body, I don't normally give you poems, and, and sometimes I'll give you three points, but this morning I'm going to break a little bit from that. I'm going to give you 28 points, um, actually a little bit more than 28 points. We're going to look at the entire Gospel of Matthew, 28 chapters in here, and if, you have your, if you've looked at your outline already, there's a section missing, and There was another communication breakdown this past week, I'm sure it was my fault, where a third of my outline wasn't in there. So it will be talked about, but you won't have opportunity to uh, fill in the blank. The first section will be somewhat by way of review, and then we'll look at some new emphases uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. But not only have uh, some people say that I'd be three points in a poem and never have 28 points, but now it's come to the point, I don't know if it's because of the dumbing down of America, I wouldn't use that as a rationale, but there's an emphasis now that when you preach, you only should have one point, because people can only remember one thing. Well, we are a much sharper group than that, that's why I'm going to give you 28 points this this morning. But if we were to reduce today's message to one point, it would be this. Jesus is king, and he is to be in charge. That's really what Matthew is emphasizing to his audience of that day and for us as well. Jesus is king of kings, and he is to rule and reign in our lives. Now, with that, with the backdrop of that singular main point, Matthew goes on for 28 chapters telling Jesus' story. And I mentioned to you that each, each one of the Gospels has a different emphasis. And we'll see that as we go through the New Testament. We'll look at every 27 books in the New Testament. But Jesus being king, and the emphasis is throughout this book because he's, he's writing to a particular audience. And this audience is a religious group of people, and they're a Jewish religious crowd. This past week in, in a life group that I teach on Wednesday, lead on Wednesday, um, a person whose name will remain anonymous, his name was Bob Lindley, but he, uh, he, he said, well, if, if the, the Gospel of Matthew was written to a Jewish crowd, then why are we reading it? It's not for us. You know, have you ever read other people's mail? You're not supposed to do that, but it's almost like we're reading somebody else's mail. Well, his wife actually responded to that very, very well. It's because you need to hear what's in this book. <laughs> but it really is true, and particularly for this audience, because He's writing to a religious crowd. And just by being here this morning, you would classify yourself as a religious crowd. You've done something religious today. And one of the, the dangers of being religious, going to activities like this, a worship service or a Bible study or some other activity through the week, is that sometimes we can get to that place where we think we're somehow better than somebody else who isn't doing what we're doing. And, and we rest our merits on what we do rather than what God has done. None of us can measure our lives in a positive way, standing before a holy God, based on our own activity. 
We all need the gospel, even beyond the first time we embrace it by faith, because it's the gospel that saves us. We always need that cross, the blood of Jesus continually forgiving us of our sins. And whenever we come to that place in our life where we think we, we don't need it because we're good enough, we've, we've missed the message. So Matthew is writing to a crowd, a group, that is so religious, they somehow have, have squeezed God out of the equation. And they feel because they were the, the chosen people that somehow everybody else was messed up, but they weren't. And so he needs to, to speak into their lives that that's the reason why someone, the Messiah, had to come because they desperately needed someone to rescue them from their condition. And so that's a backdrop. One of the things I wanted to do as we go through this series is, is give you a handle on each, each one of the, the books or gospels that we're looking at. The Gospel of Matthew has 28 chapters. And in it, when we looked at it a couple weeks ago, there is a reason why he writes the way he does. He begins by giving a reason to believe that Jesus is the promised one. The word Christ or Messiah means anointed one, chosen one. And, and why should we believe that? Because he meets that qualification. And the reason that is because in the first two chapters, we have the birth of Jesus. He, he fulfills a prophecy of being born of a virgin. He, he, he meets all the genealogical um, qualifications for being that Messiah from the, all the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. And so in chapters 1 and 2, we have the birth of the king. And then in chapter 3, we have the identification of the king. Because as he came into this world, and this, this, is, this is what's so amazing about God's plan. He, he came as a, as a little child. But there was a particular point in time in which the ministry of Jesus, proclaiming exactly who he is and what he was to do, which was to go to the cross, began. And it was at the point of his baptism in which God put his stamp that this truly was the Messiah. This is truly one that was promised because a voice out of heaven declared, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And, and, and the, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And then chapter 4, we have the immediate testing of the king. If you are really a king, then you ought to be able to, to handle the pressures of this day. And he would handle all the pressures and temptations and testings of the evil one. And then if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to share a lot of things this morning. I don't necessarily expect you to remember everything, but I, I, I want you to kind of get an idea that this is a flow through his book, through his Gospel, through his story, through his record. Some have uh, written that as you look at the Gospel of Matthew, it's kind of looking at the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, in which there are five messages. And there are five main messages of Jesus. There's the first message in chapters 5 through 7, then one in chapter 10, then one in chapter eight, 13, then one in chapter 18, and then in chapters 24 and 25. And these five messages, you have that surrounded by the activity of Jesus. So you have the, the beginning of Jesus and the birth and the identification and then the testing. And then in chapters 5 through 7, you have the Sermon on the Mount. If you ever step back for a moment and when you hear things from the Bible or about the Bible. Well, why, why do they call it the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's like who's buried in Grant's tomb. The reason it's called the Sermon on the Mount, that sermon was given on a, on a mount. And if you, if you have an opportunity to ever go to Israel, you can see this hill in which they believe that's where Jesus did the, the, the Sermon on the Mount and it's a raised area and you can just envision crowds around him presenting the truth in a powerful way. But the Sermon on the Mount was really a, a sermon declaring what it, really what it meant to, to know or to follow the king. It begins with that section which we call the Beatitudes in which 
It humbles every hearer to say, if you're really going to follow the king, then you need to be poor in spirit. And you need to be gentle. And you need to be hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not exactly a message for a proud crowd, but a message for those who felt they were undeserving. But if they would simply give their heart, they could respond to the message of the king. And in chapters 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. But then in chapters 8 and 9, we have the authenticating of the king, in which Jesus backs up what he says by what he does. And you see many miracles of Jesus authenticating who he is and what he was to do. And and then you see uh, from there the the next uh, message of the king. And the next message of the king, interesting enough, was he took the disciples who were going to be messengers of the king, and he began to train them and to send them. In many ways, he models what the church is to be all about. When we gather together, it's not simply to sing songs or to, to give into the larger program of what God's doing in this world, but we come to be trained and to be equipped so that when we leave this place, we represent him well. And so in chapter uh, 10, you have the second message of the king as he trains and sends his disciples. In chapter 11 and 12, you have the invitation of the king in chapter 11. And, and, and that's that great message. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, what? Rest. You ever get tired? Life is just spinning around so quickly. You, you, can't, you can't seem to hold on. There's too many things on your to-do list. There's too many things you, you've got to deal with and too many questions you can't seem to get answers for. And, and God says, come to me and I will give you rest. Or maybe it's not that you're so busy, but everybody else is so busy, and they, they have no time for you. And so often we need to recognize that when we're filled with worry, with worry and anxiety, we're taking responsibility for things God doesn't want us to be responsible for. And we're called to simply rest in Him. But just as people hear His invitation now, it's either received and accepted or rejected. In chapter 12, many consider that a key section where the message of Jesus is rejected, particularly by the religious leaders of that day. And then comes the third message, and this is the section which is not in your outline. It's now another message from Jesus the King, and it's the the parables of Jesus. Do you all like to hear stories? Uh, We had some, um, my cousin's children, what would that make them? Are they ne- they're not nieces and nephews, are they? Whatever. They were little, little people. All right? Little people were at our house yesterday. And, and little people always like to have people read stories to them. Well, Jesus was the master to- storyteller. But as he, wrote, as he told these stories, these stories were for those who had ears to hear and eyes to see. And, and they were known as parables. And a parable is, a, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But from that period of time where he begins to tell stories about the kingdom, and as I share with you, you got the 28-point message that I'm going to give you, the, the one point I already gave you, gave you, which is Jesus is king, he's supposed to be in charge. I'm, I'm going to get Lord willing to, to the three-point message as well. But as, as he talked from there, then we need to recognize that, that there was still response and reaction to Jesus after he told the stories. We have in chapter 14, the murder of the messenger of the king. Remember there was one cry in the wilderness about the one who was to come, John the Baptist. Well, in chapter 14, we, we have the record of him being murdered. And then chapter 15, we have Jesus responding to the skeptics of the king. People have questions, and Jesus would respond to them. Chapter 16, we'd have the faith of Peter in the king. 
Remember that was that uh, man on the street interview? You know, who do men say that I am? And there was all kinds of responses, and there's still all kinds of responses of well. But God inspired Peter to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not understood by flesh and blood, but by the Spirit of God who, who connected with Peter to declare that statement of truth about the identity of who Jesus is. And when you think about understanding the message of the New Testament, it's all about knowing who Jesus is and what he was called to do. He was the Son of God, God the Son, and he came to pay the penalty for our sins. Then in chapter 17, we have an interesting event recorded for us. Have you ever wondered what Jesus would look like if you... uh, Get the email blast we send out each week. I think I wrote a little bit about that this week. And if you'd like to be on our email blast list, you'd be sure just to call the office and say, I'm not getting the emails from the church. But sometimes when you think about being here, you think, well, how, how could people miss the Son of God being on the earth? And we think, couldn't they just look at him and say, he's not from around here. He's got to be from heaven. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 that that God did not bring him into this world in such a way that his beauty would draw people to himself. It was his character of heart and his actions and and what he did that would mark him as the one truly from God. But in chapter 17, we have the glorification, the transfiguration of Jesus, where, where if any time Jesus had his halo on, that was the time where he was glorified in the midst of his disciples. But then in chapter 18, we have the fourth message of the king. In the fourth message of the king, we now have Jesus speaking again at at a proud, stiff-necked people. People who don't want to be told what what they're supposed to be and be all about. I think that's still true for today as well, isn't it? It's It's not restricted to a certain racial or ethnic group, the Jews. It's for all of us. We have a tendency to, to have our desire for our will to be done more than Jesus's or God's will to be done. And he tells his disciples that they need to be called to a childlike faith. Now, proud people don't want to hear that. And we've all heard you know, children are to be seen but not what? Heard. You know, for those of you who are grandparents or great-grandparents, it's, it's fun to have the children come by, you get to play with them, but the good thing about being grandparents or great-grandparents is after you're tired with them, they have to what? They have to go home. You don't have to, you don't have to deal with all the challenges of them not being able to sleep at night, temper tantrums, all those kind of things, because after you play with them, they, they can go home. But there's another side about the children's, a child's heart. A, a child's heart, once they really know someone that loves them, their, their trust is complete and full. The other ones will stand on a, on a ledge, and when you beckon them to jump into your arms, they'll jump readily because they know you'll catch them. And he was speaking to them. That's the kind of faith you need to have, total dependence and reliance upon the one who's come for you. Now from there, we see Jesus speaking into the lives of the people. And you realize that that if Jesus is to be in charge, and that's the main point this morning, he is king and he is to be in charge. That means every part of our life. In chapter 19, we have the grounds for divorce from the king. Really speaking about the family. And, And the issue here is that he wants people to understand that God values that institution called family. And there, there are, he does everything he can to restrict that kind of family being blown apart. 
The Bible says in Malachi that God hates divorce. He doesn't hate divorced people, but he hates that divorce happens. And living within a sinful world and selfish world, it does happen. And sometimes relationships can't stay together. But he's pleading with God's people, break the pattern. Make the relationships last. It's not an unpardonable sin. God forgives. God gives grace. God gives mercy. But he, he raises the bar so high that the, that the disciples themselves say, well, why should we even get married if we're supposed to stay together until death do us part? And he says, by the grace of God. And in chapter 20, interesting enough, there's a chapter which I entitle The Generosity of the King. And we, Lord willing, will get a chance to look at that for a moment. In which you see God in an abundant way demonstrate just how good he is to those who hear his call. And then in chapter 21, we have Palm Sunday. We have the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And you see Jesus for a moment being praised by the crowd, but it was simply an expression of faith from the lips, but not from the heart. Then in chapter 22, we have the greatest commandment from the king. We are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And then just to add to it, to love your neighbors yourself. And then chapter 23, sometimes we hear people talk about God being a certain type of God in the Old Testament, a certain kind of God in the New Testament. That in the Old Testament, God is a God of wrath and judgment. And in the New Testament, He's a God of love and mercy. But if you want to hear strong words out of the mouth of God, read chapter 23 the condemnation of the king, as he speaks to those who are religious, so religious they can't see the Messiah in front of them. He calls them blind and fools and hypocrites hypocrites and people headed toward hell. Whitewashed sepulchers, looking good on the outside but dirty on the inside. And then we have the last message. We have the message of Sermon on the Mount. We have the message of the, the, the training and equipping of the disciples. You have the message of the parables of Jesus, speaking of the kingdom of God. You have the message in chapter 18 of call to a childlike faith. And then in chapters 24 through 25, we have what's called the Olivet Discourse. Now, in case you're quite not sure what, why they call it the Olivet Discourse, it simply was given at the Mount of Olives. And if you've been to Israel, this is one of the places where if you've been to Israel and they, they talk about, you know, walking where Jesus walked and everything like that, here's a place where actually you could see something possibly where what Jesus saw because some of the olive trees there are over 2,000 years old. But in this place, Jesus gives this, this message to the hearts of people. And much of what he talks about is his, not only his present coming, but his future coming. Not only his first coming, but he speaks about his second coming. And then Matthew finishes off his gospel by speaking about, in chapter 26, about the betrayal of the king. In chapter 27, the crucifixion of the king. And in chapter 28, the resurrection and commission of the king. Well, that in a whirlwind is the, though I combine a couple of the chapters, that, that's, that's 28 principles out of the gospel of Matthew. That's the flow of this book. But what I want you to do now is I want to look at three key passages that speak to the heart of the king. When we think about kings, we think about those who are in authority, and we're going to see that at the end of, the, of this gospel. But you need to look at the heart of the king as well. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew 13, we have Jesus giving some of the 
parables or stories about the kingdom of heaven. Now, a parable, again, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And when we think about the gospel, it's good news. It's a message that everyone should, should be eager to hear. Well, Jesus speaks so plainly about how great a message this is. Look at Matthew 13, verses 44 and 45, and then we'll go back and look at it for a moment, looking at some of the key passages. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and hid for joy over it. But go, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Well, first of all, getting the subject, he, he's speaking about the kingdom of heaven. And, and a parallel way of saying it in the other synoptic gospels, particularly in Mark and Luke, it's called the kingdom of God. And we talked about the, the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is just one word, and it really is just a designation. Heaven is a, is a place where God rules. The kingdom is a description of God ruling. The reason they use heaven in the the Gospel of Matthew is because the people of Israel were very careful about not using the name of the Lord your God in vain, so they used a synonym here. And he did not want to offend them, so he used the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God. But what is the kingdom of God? It's any place where God rules and reigns. And as we think about that, what he's presenting here is, is you look at the message of the, the one who found the treasure in the field, is the kingdom of heaven is the place of greatest joy. Now think about it for a moment. Now we don't particularly have this kind of experience in America. But if you're just walking down and maybe there's some open fields and there's not a lot of uh, buildings around it and all of a sudden, because maybe there was a rainstorm or a windstorm, all of a sudden you discover something and, and you kind of brush it apart, uh, around and you discover there's treasure there. Now, in our day, I'm not sure exactly what treasure today would be in reference to them, but it might have been a mound of precious jewels. Or, or maybe there was gold and silver. Whatever it was, but the amount of it or the type of treasure was so immense, immense, that this individual said, I- I've got to do whatever I can to get what I've discovered. Now, you need to understand, in that day, they didn't have banks on every corner. Now, in our particular history, when people have valuable things, they put it in a safe place called a bank. Because banks never go bad, right? We never have that <laughs> in our situation. Well, we've kind of had that happen recently, haven't we? But in their day, when they had something valuable, what they do is they take their land and they would find a place in it, obscure place, and they would dig as much as they could and put their treasure underground in a secure place. And then particularly because Israel often was overrun by outside sources, they knew that if, if they had to leave quickly, they wouldn't be able to take all their treasures with them, so they would leave it in that secure place and hopefully come back to that treasure. But oftentimes what would happen is they would never be able to come back and that land would, would, would change hands. But the people who would acquire the land, they would have no idea where this treasure might be. And so this individual who wasn't particularly looking for treasure came upon it, and immediately he recognized the value of it. And he said, I will do everything I can. I will sell everything I have. Anything I possess, I will give so I can acquire that land, so I can acquire that treasure. Now, let me ask you. When you think about the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ, 
When, when you think about the opportunity to have every sin that you ever committed, past, present, and, and future forgiven, when you think about having your eternity settled forever in the presence of God and not judgment, when you consider that God will be, as Jesus said in an amazing way, He will be your friend forever, that He'll no longer call you a servant or slave, but He'll call you His friend. When you think about God's presence being with you everywhere, is there anything this world has to offer that you would exchange for that? Because in reality, this is what he's saying here. If there's anything more precious than Jesus, then go for it. If there's anything in this world that you'd rather have than Jesus, then go for it. Is there anything that God promises you, that this world promises you in a greater way? Then go for it. Because this is, as Jesus said, the treasure that no one can surpass. That everything you have and anything you have is worthy to be sold and given away for the privilege of knowing Jesus. The same idea is given in the next parable, which we just read briefly, which is the the parable of the the pearl of great price. Again, the the kingdom of heaven, the place where God rules and dwells and and reigns, is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. A similar story, but a slightly different spin. In the first story, you have someone almost just stumbling upon the message of Jesus or the message of the treasure on the land. In this particular case, you have someone searching for the, the pearl of great price, the, 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 the one that is precious more than anything else in this world. And finally, when he discovers it, he gives up everything he has to possess it. You know, when I was thinking about this particular story, I was thinking about my, my appreciation for fine jewels, which is very minimal. <laughs> hey, I, tell you the truth, if you had, you know, pearls or diamonds here and they were laid on this black velvet, I couldn't tell you one from the other. I mean, you know, they have the, what, what do they call those that are fake? Um, yeah, whatever you just said, all right? You know, they'd have it, and I'd go, man, that looks just as good as that one. In fact, that has more shine to it than the real, real uh, jewel. I could be in the presence of that which is priceless, and I would not be able to appreciate it. And isn't that what exactly people do throughout history? They hear the message of Jesus, and they don't get it. They think something else is much more valuable than what he has to offer. But this one who was searching for it realized what he had in front of him, and he gave up everything he had for it. See, the kingdom of heaven is the place where God, where the greatest joy is found. Now, the kingdom of heaven is wherever the rule of the king exists. It presently is in a personal relationship with the king, and in the future it will be in his full reign, both in heaven and on earth. The kingdom is both now and not yet. We experience heaven now in our hearts with Jesus. But there's coming a time where the kingdom will rule both not only in heaven, but here on earth. What is joy? Joy is full satisfaction of the soul. Now, there's a lot of things in my life I enjoy that that just I get excited about. I I just I look forward to doing, even on the couples retreat. The year before, they told us about this. The sand hill, that if those who want to climb to the top of the mountain, we could strap on pieces of wood and we could sandboard down these, these sand dunes. Wouldn't you all like to do that? <laughs> I 
but for me, I was just looking for it. I was disappointed last year because it rained, and so we got to the top of the mountain, and we couldn't go down because the sand was too wet. So I was looking so forward to a, a dry year, and it was dry. It was 75 degrees there. We climbed up early in the morning, strapped those pieces of wood on our, on our, on our feet, and just went down those uh, sand dunes. But, you know, as fun as that was, and as much as I was looking forward to it, you know, once it was over, it was, it was over. It was done. And, and all of a sudden, I go, well, now what do I get to do? <laughs> And if, if, if all we're doing in this life is looking for one more thrill, and for you it's probably not sand dunes, but whatever it is, one more whatever, how, how dissatisfying that is. Because once it's over, it's over. But true joy is, is finding that satisfaction of the soul that is always with you. When we're called to rejoice in the Lord always, again, I say rejoice. It's all about returning to the source of your joy. And the source of your joy is that, that one who gives the treasure that once it's found is, is worthy of everything that you have. It's that joy, it's like that pearl of great price in which you find that pearl. It's worthy of everything that you have. It's that one who is with you always. As Matthew presented the message of the king, he presented the good news that there is no joy greater than being a part of God's kingdom. In chapter 20, and I'm going to do these last two really quickly, we have the, we have the story of the, of the generosity of God. We have the generosity of Jesus being the king. And we're not going to read the account, but let me just tell you the story. It's found in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. It actually begins in, uh, with uh, chapter 19 with that very familiar statement where it said, um, in fact, I want to read that part of it. Chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are last, first will be last and the last first. Remember that? Those who are last will be first and the first will be last. And then he tells a story explaining that. He tells the story of a, of a landowner who goes out and he has this vineyard and he, he needs that vineyard worked. And so he goes early in the day, and he, and he discovers there, there are people in the marketplace who need a, a day's work. And in that particular time, uh, people would work a 12-hour day for a, a day's wage. And it says that at 6 in the morning, he, he came across a group of people, kind of like our day laborers. If you've driven throughout Orange County, you will we'll find those who will get up early in the morning looking for someone who will pick them up for a day. And, and so... Jesus being the landowner that day, the foreman, he, he, he gathers these people out and he, he, he negotiates a day's wage. And it was a denarius, which was a, a fine payment for a day. It was, it was, it was union labor. It wasn't just a, a cheap labor. And so they get a, a denarius uh, promise for working a full day. Well, he comes back three hours later, it's nine in the morning, and sees some other people that need work. And he said, how would you like to work in my vineyard? And he hires them. Then he comes back at 12 noon. And he looks at those who are there still around the marketplace. A, new, a whole new group came. And he said, would you like to work in my vineyard uh, for, uh, for today? And then he comes back at 3 o'clock. And again, he finds some of those who are needed work. And he calls them. And they go to his vineyard. And then he comes back at 5 o'clock and finds, again, some people who are in need of a day's work. And so he would like to come in our vineyard for, to, to work. Now, at 6 o'clock, after the 12 hours are, are done, Jesus now begins to illustrate the difference between being uh, first and last and last first. He begins to reverse the payment uh, process. And he pays those who had worked an hour first. 
Now, the surprise of everybody, he pays those who have only worked an hour a day's wage, a whole denarius. Now, initially, I'm sure those who had been hired at 6 in the morning were thinking, man, he's going to double, triple, or quadruple my pay. But the next group who got hired at 3, he gives them a denarius. And those then at noon. And then the no, those who got hired at 9 in the morning. And then he finally gets to those who were hired at 6 in the morning, and he gives them a simple denarius. Now, what do you think the reaction was of those who had worked 12 hours in comparison to one hour who got the same pay? They were outraged. And then the, the owner there says, why, why are you upset with me if I choose to be generous? Didn't you not agree to the, the payment that I was promising to give you after a, a day's work? And, of course, the answer to that was yes. So, so why should you respond angrily that I chose to be generous for those who only worked an hour. Now, in America, our, our struggle is when anything in life is not fair. And yet, this is not an issue of fairness. This is an issue of generosity. And when you look at what God has promised, that treasure, that great pearl, is that no matter when you get in, on a relationship with God, you get, in terms of heaven, everything that everybody else gets. We will all spend eternity with God, whether it's that last moment we respond to Him in faith or where we've walked and served Him for the rest of our life. There's some other passages that talk about rewards, and there's a, that's a whole other subject. But in, in this particular portion, He's emphasizing the commonality that we have, that we get heaven. And we get to be under the rule of the king of kings. So as we look at the king, he is both gracious to give us that which is more deserving and more, more, more joyous than anything else in this world. And then he's also so generous for us to realize that no matter what our stake in life, we, we get better than we deserve. Because even the person who worked for 12 hours didn't deserve what that landowner was getting. But the final thing I want to share with you this morning is, is in the last chapter, in chapter 28. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. We'll read, this, we'll read this section and then we'll conclude this morning. In Matthew 28, we have what's called the Great Commission of, of Jesus. Beginning with verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Don't you like the honesty of the New Testament writers? I mean... In this crowd of the disciples who knew him so well, they were there to proclaim who he was and to praise him, but, but some were still struggling. They were filled with doubt. And then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then he says, Amen, truly. See, if we've gotten in on the treasure, the great pearl of, of price, of great price, and have that which is more precious than anything this world has to offer, if we really understand that no matter how much we feel that we deserve it, we've gotten much, much better than we deserve, then what should we do with that? We need to get that message out. And what happened to those disciples is they turned the world upside down because everywhere they went, they went telling people about Jesus. See, that's what we are to do as God's messengers. 
Take those people in our oikos, those people in our relational world, and we need to, to, to go out and share with them what is most important to us. In fact, there are times that that was my opening line with people. And I don't mean use line in a superficial way, but I'd say, you know, I want to tell you what's most important to me. And I'd simply tell them about Jesus. Let me ask you this morning. Who's in charge? If Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, who's in charge of your life? Is he your greatest joy? Do you realize that he is more generous than you can even imagine? Do you realize that he's commissioned you and he's given you authority to speak for him? Let's pray. Father, we all should just marvel at the message of Jesus being King of kings and Lord of lords. We should all give him authority, complete reign in our life. And it all begins with that first step where we admit our need and turn from that which is wrong and sinful in our life. Where we believe that Jesus fully paid the penalty for our sins and rose again. Where we commit to follow Jesus as Lord God and Savior. Father, help us never to forget that first step. And for some this morning, that's the step they need to make by simply saying, Jesus, I believe in you. I turn my life completely and fully over to you. And for those of us who know you, might we let you reign and rule in our lives this week so that we might be used of you to show others the way. Father, as we conclude this time together, might you just brand this message of servant, the King of kings and Lord of lords in our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we finish this morning, let's stand as we sing. And as we sing this morning, maybe you want to talk with someone about where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to talk to him about what it means to unite with God's people in the church. Whatever it might be, I want you to come as we, as we sing. Let's stand this morning. Breathe on me, breathe on me, breath of God. Breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life on you, that I may love what thou dost love, and do what thou wouldst do. on me breath of God until my heart is pure until my will is one with thine to do and to on me breath of God till I am holy thine until this earthly part of me glows with thy fire divine Breathe.
Breathe on me, breath of God, so shall I never die, but live with Thee the perfect life of Thine eternity. This uh, past Sunday, there was a football game that was played at, what was it called, the Super, Super Bowl? Um, reading some of the statistics about that game, that it was the most watched TV program in the history of American history, uh, and huge amount of um, viewership. But you know that it's true that every Sunday, there are more people that worship the King of Kings that watch even a Super Bowl. So uh, the Packers might be king of football, but Jesus is king of life. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you are worthy of our worship, and might we uh, be excited about the things that, that you are uh, excited about. Help us this week live for you, and we ask this in Christ's name. All God's people said, amen. amen.